It's a visceral experience because you've got the noise, the vibration, the raw power of the rocket. The centrifuge doesn't give you that experience. And so when you're sat on the rocket, you're also fully aware of, of you know, the whole launch day that's preceded that, the environment that you know, it's, you're being watched by family and friends. And, and it's incredible, all the emotion as well as the level of professionalism you need to have to check the rocket and make sure everything's working well. So nothing truly prepares you for launch day. Among astronauts, it is a common and understandable observation that the rest of one's life can be laden with a certain anticlimactic quality. After that, then what? For this week's guest, the answer would appear to be, why not go back? British astronaut Tim Peake, who spent six months aboard the International Space Station from December 2015 to June 2016, hopes to return to space as part of the UK's first astronaut mission. In the meantime, Tim is the author of the tremendous Space, the Human Story, part history of spaceflight, part memoir. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Tim Peake for The Big Interview. Tim Peake, welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Uh, well, first of all, we were thinking of doing this as a sort of reflection on what it is like to have been in space, but it turns out that that might not be the end of the story. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I've always said never say never, kept the doors open, and lots is happening in the commercial space environment. It's really exciting in this kind of new era of space exploration. So, yeah, there could be a potential future mission ahead. So if all goes well, and we will talk about this in the ensuing half hour or so, your book does demonstrate that none of this stuff is easy. But if it is all as easy as it can possibly be, do you have a vague idea for a departure date? No, not at all at the moment. But it, I would imagine it would be within the next couple of years because you know the, things do move fairly quickly now in the commercial space environment. And that's part of the appeal is that by getting private industry involved in space, we've been more innovative, more dynamic. Things are moving more quickly. The space station's only got a few years left before retirement. So I'd imagine it would be sooner rather than later. So this mission would, you think, be a return to the ISS? That's probably the optimal mission, because to not go to the ISS means a free flyer, a bit like it was Inspiration4 mission, the axiom on a SpaceX capsule. Uh, and that limits the amount of science you can do. If you can dock to the space station, you can, you can stay for longer, you can do more meaningful science. That would be the optimal mission. Well, let's talk a bit about your new book, Space. It's not the first time, obviously, that the story of the space race has been told, but it, it's not really been told like this before, because you do frame it very much through the stories of the people who have taken that flight. And there's not many of you. And, and it is a very human story. It's often a very funny one, actually, quite surprisingly, in many parts. But I, I, I did wonder if you ended up thinking, are there shared characteristics that all astronauts have had? Yes, I think that was really something I wanted to explore with the book, because on the one hand, we have done so much since the Mercury 7 was selected in the early Soviet cosmonauts. And yet we still need some of that skill set, the, the right stuff that was coined by Tom Wolfe in his book over 40 years ago now. You still need to get to space and back. And really, every rocket launch is a bit like a test flight. We're still building new technology and, and needing to test that new technology. But getting there and back hasn't become the story now so much 
much as what we do there is spending six months, maybe a year on the space station, all the science and engineering that you have to do. And that needs a different skill set to just the skill set that was selected back in the Mercury 70s. I mean, how important, and I know you do touch on this in the book, but how important is just plain affability? Because you are, of course, by definition, going to end up cooped up in extremely close proximity with fellow human beings. I mean, most of us can't stand sitting next to somebody on an economy class flight for 12 hours. Well, it's become more important over the years because we do have, as you say, we've got to spend a long period of time cooped up in an international environment, working together as a crew and working with mission control centres all around the world, different cultures. So likability has become more important. And during the selection process, we now place a large emphasis on the soft skills, the Mm. teamwork, communication, leadership, followership is a big thing. You know, Uh, it's all well and good being a leader, but can you also, you know, flip that coin and, and, and be a good follower? be a good teammate, be a good crewmate on the space station. They are important skills today. I was interested reading the book, though, when you talk about the qualities that astronauts require, at what point you first started to seriously consider whether you might possess them yourself? Because we've had a few astronauts on this show and some of our others, and I I am always intrigued by that moment because it's one of those almost universal ambitions or daydreams, the idea that I could be an astronaut. And I'm always interested in how and why and when you make the leap from I'd like to be an astronaut to I'm going to be an astronaut. I can actually do this. Was there a particular moment for you? I think when I was going through the selection process, I I guess I, I always felt I could do the job. And I don't mean to sound you know arrogant that way because I, I tend to be a very modest <laughs> humble person, if, if I do say, say, so, say, yourself, say so, yeah. so myself. <laughs> but you've got to have self-confidence. There's no point, there's absolutely no point going for it if you don't think you can do the job. So deep down, you've got to have that level of self-belief and confidence in your own abilities. But then I think what gives you the levity to be able to go into a selection process like that is, is perhaps not to put the pressure on yourself to think that, you know, I am going to do it because that is a choice that you can't make. The space agencies will make that choice for you. And and if they think you've got the qualities that you need to do that job, then they, they know better than you do and they will select you. So you kind of place your faith that they'll select the right people for the job. If that happens to be you, fantastic. And that is my greatest advice because you see people going for astronaut selection Election, and they're almost trying to be the person they think they should be uh, to be an astronaut. And that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. Just you have to be yourself and accept that if you're, if you've, if you're the right person with the job, they will know better than you. But was it always the plan for you? Was it always the ultimate ambition? You were a British Army helicopter pilot. You were then a private sector test pilot. Did you always have at the back of your mind, one day I would like to make the leap somehow from helicopters to spacecraft? No. (laughs) So I think that's why I differ from a lot of my peers. Um, Clearly, if you grew up in the United States, you've got a rich history of spaceflight and and people can grow up thinking, one day I'm going to be an astronaut. And in Italy and France and Germany too, they have many more astronauts to look up to as role models. We don't in the UK. Um, We had Helen Sharman and that was it in 1991, a a trip to the Mir space station, a one-off commercial mission, not part of the European Space Agency Human Spaceflight Program program, no active astronauts in their core ever. And so for me growing up, it didn't seem like a career path that I could follow. So I was focused on aviation. Mm. And that was my passion. And it really only was in my you know mid 30s when I saw 
the application online, you know, please apply, that I thought, wow, got to go for this. See, this is a detail I have to say that absolutely entrances me, the idea that, that you've just logged on to the internet, there's a website, would you like to be an astronaut? Please fill in your details here. When you're actually filling that form out, how do you get past that voice that must be in your head that goes, come on, mate, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, for me, it was a case of, of genuinely wanting the job, thinking this would be amazing, not expecting I'd ever get it in a million years, but actually thinking the process itself is an experience. It's something you'll learn something from, you'll take something away from it, depending how, it doesn't matter how far you get, you're, you know, you're going to walk away and, and grow from this experience. And that's why I went into it. I thought, well, if it doesn't come to anything, then at least I've tried, uh, given it my best shot and I'll learn something. I'll go and meet people who are working in this industry. I'll learn things from them and and it was at, genuinely was an incredible experience just to go through the selection process. Because as you describe in the book, and you, you do throughout the book measure the experiences and stories of other astronauts against your own experiences and stories, but there was quite a protracted period, wasn't there, where even once you'd been accepted, you found yourself thinking, I'm not really going to go. This isn't going to happen. I just have to enjoy and learn from the training I'm doing. Yes. And, and that's something that, you know, historically, so many other astronauts have been through that process. I think in the early days, there was an assumption they would all fly. It was, it was more a case of what order would they mm. fly in? You know, John Glenn was there as the Mercury 7 thinking he was going to be the first. And clearly, when Al Shepard was selected over and above him, that was that was a shock to not just to him, but actually to the nation. The nation had almost put John Glenn forward as the number one choice. Then as the, the astronaut corps expanded, I mean, look, fast forward to Mike Malone era in the shuttle. He wrote a brilliant book, Riding Rockets. And there are 35 selected in one class. Now it becomes a case that actually we might not all fly. Maybe mm. there's four or five of us that will never get there. And when I was selected, we weren't still part of the human spaceflight program. I later found out there were five flights for six astronauts. And it was <laughs> it was no surprise when I <laughs> found a bit of paper on the printer one morning that said Tim Peake is going to be the reserve astronaut with the lowest chance to fly. That's got to be quite a demoralising moment. <laughs> it was a tough morning, uh, but it wasn't a huge surprise in many respects. And I was aware of the political situation. I went into this with my eyes open. I knew I had more work to do than the others where their countries did subscribe to the programme. And so I just made it my, you know, my role to try and do what I could to make this a possibility. And I genuinely believe we should be part of the programme. You know, it's, it's something we can't afford not to be. There's so much happening in the space industry right now we don't want to be left behind and you know thankfully today it's a it's a different environment and nevertheless obviously you do end up flying and having done all that work and experienced all that uncertainty how does it actually feel to be told righto you're up you're going oh that's incredible that's the moment that's better than selection because selection is, is, is life-changing, but, you know, it's just, you know, you've got access to training. But the moment where you get told by your boss, no, uh, you've got a seat, there's a seat for you in two and a half years' time, all you have to do is, is you know, knuckle down and get through the training, then that's incredible. How slowly does that two and a half years pass? <laughs> <laughs> Remarkably quickly, actually. Just so much to do. As a, as a rookie astronaut, these days you've got to be able to spacewalk. So that, mm. right there, there's a few months learning all the spacewalking 
drills. You've got to be able to fly the spacecraft, rendezvous, docking. You've got to know about all the science you're going to do. You've got to be able to repair the space station, dock other cargo vehicles that arrive with a robotic arm. The list goes on. Medical training, dental training. Uh, it's phenomenal. And, and even when you launch to space, you don't really feel like you're fully trained. There's always some more that you could do. But at some point, you've just got to draw a line under it and say, right, we're going. Well, that line gets drawn for you on the 15th of December 2015 at Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. Another thing that I've always been curious about, this may be one of those things that can't really be explained to somebody who hasn't been through it, but very few of us have. Is it possible to describe what it's like being strapped into one of those things at takeoff? Um, it is. It's difficult to describe. I mean, it, it, from a physical point of view, it's a claustrophobic environment. Mm. Um, you know, you're there with three people in a tiny capsule, hatches closed, very close to your face, and then you've got a spacesuit where you close the helmet down even more. You've got to mentally make yourself comfortable with that environment. And I'd done a lot of caving and potholing. Uh, and I really relied on that experience because when I first go into a cave, I switch off all the lights and just sit in darkness and silence for a minute or two. And and your brain just says, this is the new, the new normal reset, you know, and, and then you move on. And any urge to kind of anxiety or panic has gone. You've relaxed into the environment and you have to do that in the rocket as well. But there's a moment when that, you know, when the hatch gets closed and you see the engineer kind of waving before locking it in place. And you think that's, that's fresh air gone for six months. Uh, <laughs> the next time, you know, the next time I see planet Earth will be in the summer and, and this is winter. So it is a remarkable feeling. But was the, the physical sensation of liftoff anything they'd been able to prepare you for? I mean, doubtless you'd read about it and talked to other people who'd done it and been through the simulators and all that kind of stuff. But is the actual experience something else entirely? It is. It's a, I mean, it's a visceral experience that you, because you've got the noise, the vibration, the raw power of the rocket, the centrifuge doesn't give you that experience. The centrifuge is smooth and uh, very mechanical. And so when you're sat on the rocket, you're also fully aware of, of you know, the whole launch day that's preceded that, uh, the environment that you know, it's, you're being watched by family and friends. And it's incredible, all the emotion as well as the, the level of professionalism you need to have to check the rocket and make sure everything's working well. So nothing truly prepares you for launch day. You did end up spending 186 days in space, so that that is about six months or so. Um, does there come any point on the International Space Station where it all starts to feel a bit routine, normal, even tedious, another day, another dollar kind of thing? Routine and normal, yes. Uh, tedious or boring, no. But actually that normality helps. And mm. we actually try and achieve normality as soon as we can because you've got to be able to operate as an efficient crew member. And so if you're, you know, at this heightened state of awareness in awe and wonder of planet Earth beneath you, then you can't really crack, <laughs> crack on and, and work 12 hours and do the science. So the schedule helps. You know, we work to a routine, to a, a plan. We exercise every day. But you know, we're really encouraged to kind of normalise the situation as quickly as possible. But then you do go to the cupola window and you look out and, you you know, every time you get this sense of awe and wonder. But, you know, I took up photography just because I, I realised I had to try and capture what I was seeing out the window. Did you have a particular favourite view? 
No, I think um, there, it was always changing. There was always something different. Earth by day and night are completely different. By day, you don't see signs of human habitation. So you see the planet with all its beautiful geology, so no borders from Earth. And that's weird. And I kind of wished I had studied geography more than I did because <laughs> you, you you start trying to work out now where are the countries in that continent, where are the borders, and your brain's trying to fill in the gaps because all you're seeing is rivers and mountains and forests and deserts and weather systems. And then you go to the night part of the orbit and it's thunderstorms and it's the aurora. You do see lights and, and towns and cities. So actually by night, it's much easier to work out the geography. But it's constantly changing. And every time we orbit the planet 16 times a day, mm. but on every orbit, you're passing a different part of Earth. So it's constantly changing beneath you. But between that constant distraction and the normality that you were talking about as an aspiration, whether in yourself or among the crew, does everybody stay at that heightened sense of absolutely everything all the time? I guess what I'm asking is, like, do people just occasionally have bad days? Yes. Yeah. I think you can't go six months without having the odd bad day. And sometimes, you know, people are either tired and having a bad day or maybe there's been some bad news from home or something like that. We're in normal people trying to do an extraordinary job. But um, of course, we've got normal problems. And so you try and help your crewmates out if you think that they might be having a hard time or, or struggling. But we all work together as a small team and, and there is a great support network. I would say, generally speaking, that those days are few and far between though rather than becoming the norm by the time you went to space there had obviously been a few hundred people who'd done it beforehand and there had become i guess there's this kind of cliche seems an unfairly judgmental word but there was often a thing where people would return from orbit or earlier on from further beyond talking in varying degrees about having had some sort of great enlightenment or awakening about how they saw their planet did you get anything like that did you return to earth thinking of it differently from when you'd left it you do. And I, I think most astronauts have that to some degree. I mean, they've even coined it the overview effect, this <laughs> cognitive shift in, in perspective, I guess. And it doesn't, uh, for me, it wasn't a religious experience. For some astronauts, it has been. Mm. And they've, they've been quite vocal in, in saying that a spiritual experience, maybe. For me, when I was on a spacewalk, I just had this uh, amazing feeling, this kind of connection with the universe, and on, on this dichotomy, really. On the one hand, you're thinking, this is ridiculous. <laughs> what, am I, what am I doing here, floating in space? You feel small and insignificant. The hostility, the risk is palpable. Uh, you think it's crazy. But then on the other hand, you think, well, hang on a second. You know, we are the universe. Let's, let's have a look at what we've achieved. We're the consciousness. Imagine, you know, if you're the universe <laughs> looking at itself, like you, you've managed to have your atoms forged in supernova explosions and neutron star collisions been blasted out, new stars are formed and planets and life's evolved and uh, life has evolved into conscious thinking beings that have been able to build rockets and put people into space and then actually reflect on the cradle of Earth beneath you. So that connection, I think, is important to remember where we've come from and who we are and, and what we are. It might sound a bit romantic, but we are stardust. You know, we, mm. we, are, we are the consciousness of the universe. And I think that's something to celebrate. 
But, but once you return, especially after six months, which is a decent stretch from such an extreme and clearly in many respects profound experience, how significant are the re-entry issues, not just physically but psychologically? Does it become much more difficult to get excited about the choice of cereal at the supermarket than it was six months previously? Do you have that thing of thinking, well, what am I going to do now? I didn't have the the what am I going to do now feeling. I I think that there is a period of physical rehabilitation, Mm. yes. And it does take a while for your muscles and your bones to to, get back to full strength. And you're reintegrating with your family and all the rest of it. But there is a kind of refocusing need. And I I guess it's the same in in many people's lives as well, where they may have achieved something. Maybe they're an Olympic athlete or something and they've won a gold. And what do you do? Do you refocus on a, on a, a new mission, a new challenge? But I've always been someone who's looked at taking the experiences that you have, accepting them at the time for what they are, enjoying the present and, you know, not worrying really about the future too much. There are opportunities that come along all over the place. And I think to live your life looking back and thinking, I'll never do anything like that or that was the pinnacle of my life. Or, Absolutely <laughs> not. No, I think, um, you know, live life day to day and enjoy the journey. And, and the journey ahead can be just as exciting as the journey behind just in a different way. Does it become, I guess, a burden in any respect, though? Do you find yourself, if you're, say, for example, talking to somebody in the seat next to you on one of those economy class flights and they ask you what line of work you're in, do you sort of say that you design biscuits or something? I mean, no no shade on biscuit designers because... Obviously, if you say, I'm an astronaut, they're either not going to believe you or that's your flight over. It's just going to be remorseless, inane questions, much like this interview, except a lot longer. (laughs) Yeah, it is difficult to move on from that into more normal territory. So, yeah, I wouldn't normally just come straight out with that. Perhaps (laughs) if somebody doesn't know, then I just enjoy the anonymity and enjoy a normal conversation. So there is a burden, I think, and not so much with uh, today with low Earth orbit and uh, International Space Station, it's become a bit more normal. And yes, it's still a small group of people who've flown to space, but it's a bit more normal. I think the Apollo astronauts, you know, they really did struggle Mm. with that. And you can understand why. If you've just sat on a Saturn V rocket, blasted off to the moon and walked around on the surface, maybe driven the rover and come back from that, and somebody says, what was it like? (laughs) I just don't know how you would even try and answer that. And they struggled with it. I mean, Buzz Aldrin himself admitted to having a good old-fashioned breakdown Mm. after the mission. Several astronauts struggled with it. Pete Conrad, who is a hero of mine, he's a very colourful, humorous person. I never got to meet him, unfortunately, but I think he would have been brilliant to have spoken to. He just ended up saying, you know, super, I really enjoyed it. And... (laughs) And I think that's brilliant because that really is is all you can say, isn't it? (laughs) Because I guess you you kind of have to work to avoid being, well, not just defined, but sort of trapped by it. I mean, I I understand what you mean in that one of the astronauts we have interviewed at Monocle 24 a few years ago was the great Charlie Duke, 10th man on the moon. And I remember sitting there desperately trying to think, is there a single non-silly question I can ask him that he has not been asked 10,000 times already. And it was really difficult, but he did admit that it had taken him some time to figure out how to deal with his status with a certain amount of grace and humour. It's quite a thing to carry around. It is a thing to carry around. And I, I think the best interviews are the ones that ask 
the really specific questions or, you know, the, the questions that, that not the what was it like, that where, do, where, do you go, where do you go with that? But the things maybe like, you know, hey, Charlie, you know, so the lunar regolith, you know, did it completely cover your foot or um, are you halfway down? Did it differ? Are there patches where it's deep? Well, you might sink in a bit like the snow, a snow drift. You get lunar drifts, there's regolith drifts. And, and that's when, when you speak to these people, their eyes will light up. Because it takes them back. And rather than saying, what was it like? You're like, oh, no, actually, you're right. There was this moment where I, I really did sink in and, and stumbled a bit. And then you start talking about some really interesting, small, uh, niche minutiae. And that's when I think that you get them to really open up. And they're the questions I like when people have, you know, when they're specific about something. And they've put the thought and energy into the question. It's often the mundane that we connect with. This is a useful note for future interviews with astronauts, uh, for which I thank you. But it's also a partial answer to a question I did want to ask, which is, what do you talk about amongst yourselves, you and other astronauts, on the occasions you get together, which I'm sure happen reasonably regularly? What is astronaut shop talk like? <laughs> It doesn't tend to be too much about space often. We'll come off that topic and just talk about normal things, about family and friends and sports and, and, and likes and hobbies and things. We tend to have similar passions often as well, whether that's sort of flying or skydiving or you know whatever it might be. But if we are talking together in the evenings, for example, in Star City, when we're training just outside of Moscow, we're all living together in a cottage and we're sharing food, we're eating together, cooking together. And that will be technical talk. But that's a good thing, I think, because that's when you can share the stories. And that's when the senior astronauts will open up and just say, you know, there's this one time where you know, this happened on the space station. And it's, it's a lot of humour involved there. But you're, as a rookie, you're learning, you're kind of working out the realities. And it was remarkable that Jeff Williams, a very experienced NASA astronaut, told me the day before I left the space station. So he was, he was up on board with me. And he said, Tim, I'm just going to talk you through what's really going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> on re-entry. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And, and he talked me through in great detail about the Soyuz, about the noises, the undocking, the pyrotechnic bolts. There's 14 of them. They're going to be going off right next to your ear in quick succession. It's going to sound like a machine gun. There's going to be a lot of violent juddering and, you know, every step. And I think, wow, that was amazing. And I'm glad you told me that. He said there'll be about four or five times where you think it's all over and the spacecraft is going to be catastrophically destroyed. It is not. Don't, don't worry. You're <laughs> I safe. mean, that, that's always um, nice to hear that you're not going to be catastrophically destroyed. Yeah, yeah. But I thought <laughs> that was the best lesson that I've ever had on re-entry. And it happened the day before it happened. <laughs> and thought, why, why aren't you there in, in training telling every, everybody this? But sometimes it is those lighter moments when astronauts are just relaxed and we're just chatting together. That's sometimes when you learn the most. But to go back to where we came in, I guess, which is the prospect of you returning to space, is there anything about it that you're especially looking forward to? I mean, now that you've done it once and you kind of know what to expect in a lot of respects, is there something you are especially anticipating? Well, if I get the chance to go back again, I, I think it's, it is the view and that's really the big draw. 
And when Scott Kelly was going home, he had been up there for nearly a year in space. When I arrived, he was my commander and he was at the eight-month point. I know Scott very well, got to spend you know, that time in space with him. He's an amazing commander, brilliant man. And we had to drag him from, uh, well, he was floating, so we weren't really dragging him home, but from the cupola window and force him into the spacecraft to send him home. You'd think that he would be des- <laughs> desperate to get out of there, see friends and family again. But there was this kind of this look in his eye and, and he, he knew that this was it for him. He was you know leaving the space industry after he got back and this was his last chance to have a, a view of Earth from space. And even with somebody who had that much time in space, that much experience, it was still that captivating for him. Just one final question, which is something else which has always intrigued me. As we've been saying, your book does an extremely good job of telling the stories of some of the people who have done this. But obviously, there is a vast global fascination with spaceflight. There always has been since well before humankind slipped the surly bonds of Earth. And people have tried again and again and again to represent it in fiction, in film, in music. As somebody who's actually done it, have any of those attempts by the Earthbound to represent space travel rung true to you? Yes, there there have actually. And uh, strangely enough, the movie Gravity, which is (laughs) dreadful in terms of the scientific content. The story is just entertaining. It's Hollywood. But if you watch Gravity, it's the cinematography. Look at the view of Earth. That's what it looks like. I was watching that on the big screen with Luca Parmitano, actually, an Italian classmate of mine. And he had just come back from his mission and I was about to go and we're sitting there. And and he said, you know, this is this is amazing. It's just taking me straight back to the space station. Of course, when I got up there, I could see what he meant. And so that did a really good job of the cinematography, of that kind of feeling, that, that view of Earth from space. I think The Martian, the book more than the film in terms of telling the story of, and more accurately, perhaps, of how we're going to go and live on another planet, the kind of spacecraft we might have to build, the kind of crews that we're going to select, the things we're going to have to think about living and working on another planet. I thought Andy Weir did a brilliant job in his novel in depicting that. Tim Peake, thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle Radio. Tim's book, Space, The Human Story, is available now, published by Penguin. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Jack Dewars. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.